Last week we started the book of Ecclesiastes. And as I mentioned last week, Ecclesiastes is in many ways a very strange book to be reading in the Bible. It's a book full of depressing and almost despairing perspectives on life. But the truth is, as I said last week, Ecclesiastes is actually a source of great wisdom because what Kohelet, the preacher, this main voice that we hear speaking in Ecclesiastes, what Kohelet teaches us as he searches under the sun is that ultimately there is nothing in a world without God, in a world that is purely captured in what is before us, nothing that can give us true meaning, true happiness. Vanity of vanities, he says, all is vanity. For the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at three different themes, three different avenues that Kohelet sought to find meaning and happiness, three different things that ended up turning into nothing but vanity. And the first of those, the one that we're going to look at tonight, is wealth. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the vanity of wealth. That's actually where Kohelet begins his search. He begins by devoting himself to pleasure, to everything that wealth can provide, to seeking true fulfillment and happiness through the goods of life that can be bought through money. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That's how chapter 2 begins. And then for the rest of chapter 2, we read about all the different pleasures that Kohelet gave himself over to. Pleasures of wine and inebriation. Pleasures of luxurious living. He built a palatial home. He speaks of private gardens and pools. He had servants. He had men and women singers, concubines, everything that money could buy. Every physical pleasure that he could experience, he gave himself over to. He grew in wealth and he grew even in status. We're not quite sure if Kohelet is supposed to be Referencing a historical figure, last week I mentioned that he's probably a literary representation of King Solomon. But the life that Kohelet describes is very similar to the life that Solomon himself lived. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, we read that Solomon's wealth was so great that it excelled all the kings of the earth. And all who came to see Solomon in his grandeur and splendor were amazed at his wealth and all of the pleasures that he could buy. But although Kohelet was able to acquire every pleasure that he could possibly imagine, ultimately, he found it empty. He found it meaningless. He found it vain. Look at what he says. In, chap in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. 
and this was my reward for all my toil. Kohelet experienced pleasure beyond anything imaginable in Jerusalem. And yet, what does he say in the next verse? Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, look, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This note that he ends on, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It sounds despairing and bleak, like much of the book of Ecclesiastes. But what Kohelet is saying is, no matter how much pleasure you can experience in life, at the end of that life, it cannot grant you the true happiness that you seek. At the end of life, it still, still feels like never enough. Coalette reminds me of another very wealthy figure in the modern world by the name of John D. Rockefeller. You'll probably know the name John Rockefeller because we still live with his legacy in America. But Rockefeller was probably the wealthiest American to ever live. At the end of his life, his, his personal wealth was about 1% of the entire national economy. Scholars estimate that Rockefeller's wealth was about three times that of Jeff Bezos today, or about four times that of Bill Gates. Rockefeller had more wealth than you can possibly imagine and he could buy every pleasure that wealth could possibly buy. And yet, near the end of his life, someone once asked him, how much is enough? How much is enough? You have acquired so much. When will it be enough? And this is what he said, just a little bit more. The life of John Rockefeller is a great illustration of the principle that Coalette is trying to teach us, which is that no matter how much wealth you may acquire, no matter how many pleasures you may be able to purchase, at the end of it all, if you, that is what you're looking to, to give your life satisfaction and meaning, if that is where you are placing your trust and placing your hope for security, ultimately it will disappoint. Look what Kohelet says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will never be satisfied with his money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So that's one of the major themes of this book that we read, that wealth and the pursuit of wealth is ultimately vain, like a vapor, like a breath that blows away and finally, in the end, disappoints. The question, though, is why is this the case? Sure, we can cite examples like John Rockefeller. We could cite plenty of other examples of famous celebrities or wealthy persons who have expressed discontent and despair with their life, despite all the luxury that they seem to be enjoying. But why is it the case that money, that wealth, does not guarantee the happiness that we seek from it. Well, in chapters five and six, Coalette returns to this theme of the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of money. 
And he gives some more of his wisdom from his observations on life. And he gives three reasons, I suggest. Three reasons that money ultimately disappoints. The first of those is that wealth increases stress. Look what he says in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What Coalette is observing here is simply that the more you get, the more care and anxiety comes along with it. The more you get, the more people tend to be dependent on you. The more you get, the more you have to share. The more you get, the more you worry about it. Sleep is sweet for the one who labors and has little. But for the wealthy man, Coalette says, sleep never seems to come. The full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. It's not just Coalette who's observed this. This is something that is true in modern life as well. I recently came across a book by a law professor at Yale named Dan Markovitz. And in the book, he looks at the, the, what he calls meritocracy, which is really just the, the system that we have in the United States today. The system that has allowed many people to rise up from low means to places where they are elite and have great wealth and status. But even though, Markovitz says, even though this system has enabled many people to climb a social ladder, to better the circumstances in their life, he also says that it has brought us great misery and that even those who are at the very top, the wealthy, the elite, those who have the money to buy every pleasure they could want, quite often their life is actually filled with anxiety and stress. And the reason is, Markovitz says, because it takes an enormous amount of work and time and attention, not only to acquire wealth, but to retain it. And every generation must bear this burden. Students who are born into wealthy families, begin school at a young age and have enormous pressure put on them to perform so that they can get into the top school and from that top school get a great job at some financial firm or some law firm or somewhere that they can also make good money. And once they've acquired all of that, then, then they have a life where they spend 70, 80 hours a week sometimes working, trying to maintain their status and their lifestyle. I remember when I was teaching undergrad students at an elite college up in the Northeast. And one of my students came to me and he was in the business program at the college. He was doing very well, but he told me how incredibly stressed and anxious he felt and how empty his life felt, despite the fact that he was succeeding in ways that no one else in his family was. The life that he found himself in was a life of immense anxiety, immense stress, immense worry. Here's how Dan Markovitz puts it in his book. Meritocracy traps entire generations inside demeaning fears and inauthentic ambitions, always hungry 
but never finding or even knowing the right food. That phrase, always hungry, but never finding or even knowing the right food. That's a great description in many ways of Kohelet himself as he devotes himself to a life of pleasure and as he looks out and sees what wealth brings to life. So that's one of the reasons that wealth ultimately does not bring meaning and happiness because with wealth comes increased stress and anxiety. But there's another reason as well, which is that wealth is inherently unstable. Look what Kohelet says in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil. What Kohelet is imagining here, and what he tells us that he has seen, this grievous and sickening evil that he has witnessed, is someone who has worked hard to keep, to save, and to invest, and to accumulate wealth, and yet, who in a bad venture, because of some great misfortune, loses all of that wealth, loses everything that he has worked hard for, loses what he has saved. He doesn't tell us exactly what this bad venture is. And maybe there's a reason for that. Some scholars have suggested that Coalette intentionally leaves this vague so that we can fill in from our own experience what that may look like. Because all of us have known people, all of us have known people personally who went through great tragedies, went through great financial difficulties, who lost everything that they had through a downturn in the stock market or through a bad investment choice or through misfortune that they couldn't possibly expect. And this has brought immense misery to them. And even if you don't know someone personally who's had that, you can imagine what it might be like and you've certainly heard stories and those who have acquired a lot of wealth, those who have great investments, even if they themselves aren't experiencing misfortune, they have anxiety and they worry about the unforeseen, what is to come, how they might lose the wealth they've acquired. So that's Coalette's point. Wealth cannot bring happiness. Wealth is ultimately vain because it's unstable. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And therefore, and this brings me to my final point, Coalette says that wealth is ultimately vain because wealth cannot satisfy. Look what he says in chapter 6, verses 3 and then again in verse 7. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he does not even get a burial site. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Now, Coalette imagines another grievous evil that he's witnessed. Here is someone, not someone who's lost their wealth, not someone who has nothing to hand down to his son, 
or no children to hand wealth down to. No, here is someone, Coalette says, who has acquired immense wealth and enjoys it and has a multitude of children to hand that wealth down to. And yet, his appetite is not satisfied. There is never enough. And for that person, imagine someone like John Rockefeller, just a little bit more. Coalette says, for someone like that, with an unending appetite that cannot be satisfied, better to have never been born at all. Because in the end, that person will never find satisfaction. That person will ultimately face the mortality we all face. They will shuffle off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare puts it, and then their wealth will come to an end. So there's three reasons that he gives why wealth cannot satisfy, why this is a vain quest. Because wealth increases stress. Because wealth is inherently unstable. And therefore, wealth cannot satisfy. It cannot give the meaning and the happiness that we seek from it. At the same time, it's important to recognize that when Coalette talks about wealth and what he has observed in the world, he does not portray wealth as an inherently bad thing or something that is to be avoided at all costs. In many ways, Coalette says that wealth is also can be a gift given to us, that the goods of life are to be enjoyed, that possessions are not something to be avoided, but in fact enjoyed as gifts of God. Look what he says at the end of chapter 5. This is right between two sections, one in chapter 5 where he talks about the vanity of wealth, and then another in chapter 6 where he talks about the same thing. But right in between those two sections, in verses 18 and 19, he says something that sounds a little different. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So for Coalette, wealth ultimately cannot bring final happiness or the satisfaction that we so often crave from it, but it is still a good. It is still a gift, and with gratitude, we are meant to enjoy the gifts of God. This perspective on wealth and the role that, the, the way that wealth relates to our happiness and what we seek out of it, this is wisdom that we need today. Uh, for we live, as Madonna once said, in a very material world. You remember that 1984 song that Madonna had? We are living in a material world and I am a material girl. Madonna recorded that song 35 years ago, but I'm not really sure that a lot has changed since then. We still, we in America live in an enormously affluent country. We still live in a material world where we are prone, where we are conditioned, where we are invited to find happiness and satisfaction and security through possessions and through the enjoyment of possessions. There's this interesting book, Affluenza, 
which was published in 2005 and has gone through multiple editions since then, looking at this materialism, this consumerism that so pervades our experience of American society. And here's what the authors of this book, here's how they define affluenza. Affluenza is a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. In their book, they look at some statistics from the U.S. Census Bureau, and they note that at this point in American history, over 70% of our national economy goes to consumer goods. We spend more money every year on shoes, jewelry, and watches than we do on higher education. But affluenza, this condition of constantly wanting more, constantly looking to possessions to give us happiness, this isn't something, they say, that infects just the rich. This is a social condition that pervades all of society. And no matter how much or how little money you may have, we still live in a world that tells us that we can find happiness, that we can find security, that we can find meaning if we just had a little bit more, as Rockefeller put it. The sociologist Robert Withno uh, describes the materialism of the society that we live in now. And he says it's, it's, it's almost like the water that fish swim in. We're unaware of it, uh, but it surrounds us in every way. Here's what he says. Materialism becomes so much a way of life that we no longer recognize it as an option, as one value among others that we can decide to choose or to reject. It ceases to raise questions, but is taken for granted as an inevitable feature of our society. Without realizing it, Ronald Reagan perhaps said it best when he commented on our obsession with getting and keeping of wealth. That is not materialism, Reagan said. That is Americanism. So in this world that we currently live in, how can we relate well to wealth and to money and to possessions? Taking the wisdom from Ecclesiastes, what would it look like to live wisely in this material world, in this material culture? Coalette tells us that wealth cannot truly satisfy, that ultimately, in the long run, it is empty, mere breath. At the same time, Coalette also tells us that wealth and the goods of, uh, that we experience, that these are a gift of God that these are something to be enjoyed with gratitude. And Coalette's wisdom, this is not something just that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes, of course. Scripture, in many ways, teaches us the same thing. The Bible is, has many, many warnings to us about the, the danger of loving wealth. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that the love of money, the love of wealth, is the root of all evil. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, tells us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, something Coalette probably observed, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. There are warnings then about the dangers that we face in living in a material world that tempts us to lay up treasures on earth. At the same time, 
The Bible tells us that creation is inherently good, that God has given us gifts to enjoy. It never says that money or the possessions or that wealth in and of themselves are some kind of evil. So how do we live wisely then? What does it look like to live well? One person who's helped me in thinking through this is a Lutheran theologian by the name of Gilbert Mylander. And he says that there's no simple, easy solution to this question of how do we live well with money? Because scripture gives us wisdom that teaches us many lessons. And therefore, that it is a task for us. It's a never-ending balancing act that we have to balance these two truths, both the danger of the love of money and its goodness. And he has two terms that he came up with to describe this balancing act. One is enjoyment and the other is renunciation. Enjoyment and renunciation, he says, both of these principles must inform the way that we relate to wealth and to money and to possessions in the world in which we live. And here's how he puts it. Christians can, therefore, adopt and recommend no single attitude toward possessions. When they attempt to understand their lives within the world of the biblical narrative, they are caught up in this double movement of enjoyment and renunciation. Neither half of the movement taken by itself is the Christian way of life. To live well in a material world, to live wisely in relation to money and to possessions, requires us to, to balance both of these movements, enjoyment, gratitude, and renunciation, knowing the danger that the love of money poses to us. And this requires us to develop the kind of virtues that the book of Proverbs talks so often about. Virtues like moderation and simplicity. Virtues like temperance and gratitude. And virtues like generosity and sharing what we have with others. We ought to enjoy the gifts of God, as Coalette says we should. But also, we have to be willing to renounce the desire for more, this desire to always have a more, this dogged pursuit that tells us just a little bit more. In the end, materialism, the notion that what we buy, that the experiences and that the objects that money can purchase for us will give us true happiness and meaning in our life, Materialism like that is ultimately a lie. That's what Coelette is telling us. This kind of pursuit of wealth in the long run will always disappoint. And therefore, to live wisely, we have to recognize this lesson, the ultimate vanity of wealth. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity. And this is what every person who dedicates their life to the constant acquisition of more. This is what they will find. This book of Ecclesiastes, this strange book, has much to teach us about how to live well and live wisely in this material world that we find ourselves in.